Good morning and welcome to Understanding the Law. I'm your host, Peter Lamont. I'm a business and personal law attorney and the principal of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law is a weekly radio broadcast where we discuss a variety of legal topics that affect our listeners. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with our listeners. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners, and if you want to call in and discuss one of the topics today, please do so by dialing our switchboard at 347-855-8831. We'll try to get through as many calls as possible. Uh, We're off to a little bit of a late start. We had some technical difficulties, but here we are. Uh, So today's show, I want to talk about a question that comes up frequently, either on the Internet or something that's asked in some of our seminars, and it it concerns how to select an attorney. And it's an important question because we have so many attorneys um, in in the marketplace today. It it makes it very difficult for an individual or business to understand what they should be looking for in an attorney, what sort of attorney they should be choosing, and how the relationship should work. So let's talk a little bit about uh, what the first steps are and what you should be looking for. And the first and most important thing is that you need to understand the area of law that your potential issue arises out of. And this is important because far too many people will end up coming to our office uh, and say that they had hired an attorney previously and it was for a breach of contract case, and they weren't satisfied with the job that the attorney was doing. But it turns out that the attorney was a real estate attorney, and that's all that that attorney practiced. And uh, I would say to them, well, how did you come across this real estate attorney? What prompted you to sign up with this guy? And the response is, well, you know, he was a friend of the family, or my sister used him for a closing. He's the only attorney that I know. And so that's why we chose him. Well, that's the absolute worst idea, the worst way to choose an attorney. What you need to first understand is the area of law. Now, you don't need to be a specialist. You don't need to be an attorney yourself to figure out what is my lawsuit or what is my claim or my legal matter about. Now, if if it's something where you're injured, most everybody understands that this is a personal injury matter. So I'd want to look for somebody that has experience in the personal injury field. Uh, If it's a contract issue or a business issue, you'd want to look for an attorney that was experienced in contract or business law. Just because someone is an attorney does not mean that they're qualified to handle every type of legal matter. Uh, So that's very, very important. Now, when you understand the area of law that you need to uh, direct your, your search for an attorney in, What's the next step? Well, there's always word of mouth. There's always talking to people that you know and family members and asking them if they know any attorneys or who they've used in the past. And remember to be cognizant of the fact that just because they've used the attorney doesn't mean you should. You need to figure out whether or not that attorney practices in that area of law where your claim arises out of. Uh, The other good way, and it's become a very popular way in the last five or or six years, 
to find an attorney is through some of the online attorney websites. Um, one in particular, which is a very good one, is Avvo. It's A-V-V-O dot com. And it can help clients uh, find an attorney in their city, in their town. And um, it, it's you know a very easy way to search for an attorney based upon your area of practice. So if you're looking for a contract attorney, all you have to do is search contract attorney within your city or state, and it will pull up a list of attorneys. And then it gives you the ability to look at the attorney's profile. Um, there's an attorney rating system, 10 being the highest, and it, it talks to you about what they specialize in, what their areas of practice are, whether or not they've had any malpractice issues or ethical violations, which is very important uh, when choosing an attorney. Now, there are other websites as well. Uh, Avo seems to be one of the most popular and uh, one of the most comprehensive. So now that you have identified the attorney, now what's the next step? Well, you need to do some due diligence on your own. So you've already identified the attorney, and I'm assuming that you've most likely done it online, so you've had an opportunity to review the attorney's credentials. You can look at his website or her website and get an idea of where they practice and what their experience is. Now you're going to make your first call to that attorney or their office, and you want to set up a consultation. So right off the bat, you're going to be faced with either an attorney who wants to charge you a consultation fee or someone that doesn't. And that could sway your decision because oftentimes people are unsure as to whether or not they have a claim. And they don't necessarily want to spend 250 or $300 for an initial consultation. So the suggestion that we have is you should look for an attorney that offers free consult consultations. Uh, it's very, very... Uh, popular. Most attorneys do it now. Just because somebody charges you a consultation fee doesn't mean that they're a better attorney than someone that doesn't. Uh, a lot of the old school attorneys have this uh, thought that if they charge you a consultation fee, A, they're going to weed out those clients who aren't really serious, and B, um, you're going to think that they have better skills and more credentials because you're paying for this consultation. So that's that's a myth. That's something that um, doesn't really have any bearing. So look and figure out, is there a consultation fee? Do you want to pay a consultation fee? If you don't, there are thousands of lawyers that do not charge consultation fees. So that's that's important. Now, once you get your appointment with the attorney, you need to ask that attorney questions. You don't want this to be an interview uh, of yourself by the attorney without you interviewing the attorney. The same way that he is deciding and analyzing whether or not he should take your, your case, you need to be deciding whether or not you want to work with that attorney. When you hire an attorney, you have to develop some level of of trust, and a relationship with them. They're going to be representing you. They're going to be appearing on your behalf. They're going to be making statements and trying to secure whatever your position is. And you cannot 
sit home and worry or wonder whether or not that attorney is doing what you asked him or her to do. So you need to develop some rapport. You need to look at this attorney and decide, do I like the way they speak to me? Are they letting me ask my questions before they just jump in and assume they know what I'm going to ask? Do they appear patient? Are they easily excited? And decide what sort of personality meshes best with yours. Because over the course of, of a lawsuit, it could be a year to two years that you're involved with this attorney. And it's really important that you, you like this person. It's not good enough to hire somebody who uh, you believe is the, the tops in their field. Because that's all so subjective, you know, whether or not the attorney is, is the best in the field. There are thousands of best attorneys out there. So don't be fooled just because somebody uh, has told you that this is the best attorney in the area. If you don't like that attorney and you can't get along with them, they're not going to be the best attorney for you. So that's very important to understand. You have to have a good working relationship with this person. Now, the other thing that you'd want to ask questions about is you'd want to gauge this attorney's level of responsiveness. One of the, the major complaints with attorneys is that they do not respond to phone calls in a timely manner. They do not respond to emails, and the client is left wondering what's going on. That is no good for you as a client to sit home and wonder and worry, what's, what's the status of my case? What's the attorney doing for me? We believe that you can find a high-quality attorney that provides you with updates without you having to ask. Now, that's something that we've implemented at our firm where it, it's uh, something that's mandatory of all of our attorneys and staff. We want to tell our clients what's going on before they ask because it's important for us to let the clients know that you can trust us, we're doing the right thing, we're on the right track, we are you know, concerned about you and your case, and we're moving forward with it. If you interview your attorney and you believe that the attorney is not someone, either based upon prior complaints or things you've read online, or just the general sense that you get from the attorney during the initial meeting, that they are not going to be responsive or that they don't view your legal matter as one of uh, significance, then that's not the right attorney for you. Oftentimes, I'll hear attorneys say, oh, I've got a number of large cases and then a few small ones. And those small cases, you know, those clients can wait. Well, that's inappropriate. That's not the way that an attorney should represent a client. There should be no differentiation between a small client or a large client. You're all clients. It makes no difference what the value of your case is or how much you're paying the attorney. When an attorney takes your case, they should treat you just the same as if you were paying them, you know, top dollar. So you're going to be able to gauge some of that from the initial consultation. You'll be able to determine whether or not this attorney, just through his comments or her comments and facial expressions, Decide whether or not you think this person is taking you seriously. Now, something else that I want to warn you about. When you are on the Internet, you will see um, 
the designation of super lawyer and super lawyer in particular is one of these more misleading terms. A lot of attorneys are quote unquote super lawyers and they put that on their website or you can find that on the super lawyer webpage. But what does that really mean? Does it really mean that they are the man of steel, the, the super lawyer that's going to, um, you know, recover millions of dollars for you? No. What it is is it's a peer rating system. So, in other words, when an attorney is seeking to become a super lawyer, he or she requests uh, nominations from their fellow attorneys. And they put together a petition that they would like to be a super lawyer and based upon the number of attorneys that want to support them, uh, an investigation is conducted by the super lawyer's organization and if sufficient criteria are met, primarily peer referrals and recommendations and interviews of those attorneys, they grant you the designation of super lawyer. But does it mean that you are any better than someone who is not a super lawyer? Absolutely not. It's very misleading. There's actually been litigation about that in the uh, in the state courts of New Jersey as to whether or not an attorney can use that distinction as a main uh, draw to their services or website. Um, super lawyer is something that you need to take with a grain of salt. Peer endorsements are easy to come by, which is why if you notice that a lot of the larger firms, most of their attorneys are quote-unquote super lawyers because there is a, uh, a peer rating system within firms where firms are allowed to contact super lawyers and uh, nominate their own attorneys. And they, it's based on a point system. So if you nominate somebody that's within your firm, it's less of a point uh, range than it would be if it was an outside attorney or a friend. But my point here is do not get fooled or sucked in to that designation of super lawyer being the thing that makes one lawyer better than the other. Every lawyer who is licensed in any state has passed the bar exam, has been through law school, and has had experience in the field. Your job when you interview these attorneys is to determine whether or not their experience level meets your requirements, whether or not their personality meshes with yours, and if it's someone that you can work with and trust, whether or not that individual is going to treat your case just as seriously as a multi-million dollar case and what their level of commitment to you is going to be. And believe it or not, you can gauge all of that from the initial interview. Now, the final comment I have on this is fees, because even when you really like an attorney, it may be that that attorney is asking you for too much money. And money is a factor when hiring uh, an attorney or a contract or anyone in the professional services industry. So most attorneys nowadays are realizing that there are better ways of helping clients than strictly through flat fee arrangements or hourly billing. Hourly billing can tend to uh, rack up time very quickly. And so there are a number of attorneys and law firms who have instituted alternate pricing plans. Uh, it's something that we've done and have been doing for the last four years because 
we want to provide legal services, the quality legal services to everyone, and we think that they should be affordable. So just because you go to a lawyer and you like him and he says it's going to be $500 an hour and you can't afford that, don't just hire that lawyer. Go and look and talk to other attorneys. See if there's alternate pricing arrangements that they will be willing to make with you. Now, there's also a distinction that you need to know about between fees and costs. So when an attorney charges you fees, that's time, that's money based upon his time. So he's charging or he, he or she is charging you for the amount of time that they spend on a matter, their work. But there's also something that, that comes up and it's called costs, the actual cost of filing a lawsuit the filing fee with the court. And a lot of times attorneys will say to you, especially uh, contingency attorneys, personal injury attorneys who will tell you, if we don't recover for you, you don't pay any fees. That's true. If they don't recover for you, you don't pay any attorney's fees. But what they don't make clear is that you may be responsible for paying the actual court and litigation costs. So if it costs you Two hundred or three hundred dollars to file a complaint, you'll be responsible for that. If an expert report is five hundred to a thousand dollars, you're responsible for that as well. Depositions that could range from one thousand to twenty-five hundred dollars. It's possible at the conclusion of a personal injury case, if you don't recover, you could still be asked to pay a bill upwards of five thousand dollars from the attorney. So make sure when you discuss a retainer agreement with the attorney that you understand the difference between fees and costs and ask the attorney to clearly explain to you what you will be responsible for if you do not recover any money or if you do recover any money. So that's important. If you have any questions on that, you know, I welcome you to email us directly at info at Peter Lamont, P-E-T-E-R-L-A-M-O-N-T-E-S-Q.com. And we'll answer those questions for you. It can be a very, very challenging procedure to try to find the right attorney, but it's very important that you do so because it can make the difference between a successful or unsuccessful case. All right, next I want to talk about um, something that's uh, very interesting. Liking pages on Facebook is something that uh, we do all the time. It's very easy. You just click that little finger and, and you know, you've liked that page and it entitles you, entitles you to receive that company or individual's news feed. You can see what they're up to. Um, it doesn't take much time or any effort. And oftentimes people view it as the polite thing to do. Oh, my friend posted something, so I'm going to like it. Well, this is an interesting case because the U.S. Court of Appeals has just ruled that under certain circumstances, Clicking the like button constitutes freedom of speech under the First Amendment. Now, this arises out of a case um, that's named Bland versus Roberts. Uh, it's a Fourth Circuit case, and it was decided on uh, September 18, 2013. This case in particular involved a public sector employee. It was an employee who worked for a sheriff's department, and the sheriff was running for re-election, and in the campaign, uh, he had an adversary who was also very, very popular, so it was a very heated campaign. 
And there was a lot of um, arguments between the employees of the sheriff's department as to who they were going to back. But the sheriff believed that everybody that worked for him should be backing him. So over the course of the um, campaign, two of the deputies that worked for the sheriff decided that they liked the other one better. And they liked the adversary's page on Facebook. They didn't comment. They didn't make any statements. All they did was push the like button. So at the conclusion of the election, the sheriff, who had already been the sheriff, was, was reelected. And his first act as a reelected sheriff was to refuse to rehire the two deputies that liked his adversary's Facebook page. So they filed a lawsuit. They said, this isn't fair. You shouldn't be permitted to fire us or not rehire us simply because we expressed our feelings and clicked the like button. So this case went through a number of, of lower courts, and ultimately what happens is the um, U.S. Court of Appeals says, you know, it is freedom of speech. It is a First Amendment right. When you click the like button, you know, in, in today's new and evolving technology, that still is an expression of protected speech. So what the sheriff's, sheriff did was improper. Now, that was a public sector employee, but this also has an impact on private sector employees and employers. What's important to understand here is that the sheriff found out that the deputies clicked the like button because he had been friends with them on Facebook. If he hadn't been friends with them, he probably wouldn't have known, but he was. So this is important for private sector employers and for the employees. Do not friend your coworkers. Do not friend management. It's not a good idea. It opens up the possibility of improper action. Now, these deputies who lost their job or weren't rehired, They've been litigating this case, and they've not been working. So it's not necessarily that it's a huge moneymaker, and they're glad that they were fired because now they're going to make all this money off this lawsuit. That's not how it works. You'd rather have your job. So it's very important for you to be able to separate your work from your home. Don't allow an employer to see into your private life and see what you're doing on Facebook or Twitter or any of the social media sites. It's just not a good idea. Now, when the sheriff decided not to rehire them, even though it was disputed, the court believed that it was a direct result of the likes. So you don't want to give your employer the ability to see what you're doing and then make a decision based upon that. Because it's possible that an employer could, without you even knowing, without mentioning it to you, look at your social media page, find something that they don't like about it, and then plan to terminate you. And only in their mind do they know it's based upon what they saw on your Facebook page. So that's very important. Um, this also opens the doors for a lot more legislation and uh, rules and statutes regarding the ability of employers to express themselves 
or employees, I should say, express themselves via social media. Uh, the National Labor Relations Board is already involved in a case that um, will ultimately result in a ruling um, and, and clarification of prior rulings that when employees congregate online, on let's say Facebook, and they're posting complaints or issues that they're having that are a direct result of their employment, such as um, salary or raises or time off or other issues, not whether or not they like the boss, but issues involving the um, specifics of their employment, that you cannot be terminated for doing so because it's protected under the National Labor Relations Act. And they treat it as if it was an organized union. Now, I use the word union lightly, but traditionally the National Labor Relations Board dealt with unions and the ability of employees to congregate to discuss issues. And you'll find that you know, most of the NLRB um, rulings from 10, 15 years ago, they all deal with, with unions. But that's evolved now because people can congregate online via a social network and they can be doing uh, similar things that, that a, a union would be doing. Obviously, they don't have bargaining power and that sort of thing, but the idea of the protected communication. So this is going to result in a number of uh, NLRB rulings and clarifications, and I think that what you'll find is that throughout the country, um, this idea of freedom of speech, when you click a like button or when you interact with social media, by the you know, doing of an action as opposed to words that you're writing is going to be protected. Uh, there are already a number of states which have ruled that uh, the individual state has to allow employees, whether they're private or public, to post certain things online, to have some freedoms, to like things. So it's just going to spread, but it's an, it's a, an important turning point because this is really um, a case of first impression for the U.S. Court of Appeals and, and a very interesting case that's going to shape the way that employers and employees interact with social media. Because you cannot get rid at this point of social media. It's too valuable a tool for businesses and it's too uh, valuable a tool for individuals who want to keep in touch with family and friends. Surprising how many people get their news and updates and things from social media. So this is a, an important and interesting decision. All right, now I want to get into some of our, uh, our news briefs. This is an interesting case. Um, many of you know the Robert De Niro film, Raging Bull. And just recently, a case has been uh, approved to go to the U.S. Supreme Court arising out of this film. So, back in 2009, a um, family member of the um, creator, Frank Petrella of Raging Bill, uh, I believe it was his daughter, Paula, she filed a lawsuit, and uh, it was against MGM, and she was essentially alleging copyright infringement for distribution of the movie without permission. And... Um, went back and forth for a while, 
MGM alleged that she could not bring the suit because of the doctrine of latches. Now, this is interesting. Latches is something that is not well known um, among non-lawyers. People know what the statute of limitations is or they understand what that could do to a case. But latches is something that's very unique and uh, it's almost archaic, but it still comes into play in you know, today's lawsuits. Now, latches is very similar to the statute of limitations in that it can prevent someone from pursuing a claim because they are time barred. But there's a distinction here, and this is what, what we need to understand. The statute of limitations is just what I said, a statute. It's statutory. So although there is equitable um, benefits to the statute of limitations, in other words, it would be unequitable, it would be unfair to allow somebody who was injured when they were 21 um, and then bring suit against the person now that they're 52. It just does not seem fair. It's, it's not equitable. So statute of limitations is comprised of both the equitable issues and the statutory issues. So each state has a particular number of years uh, that you can bring a particular claim. So, for example, in New Jersey, for a breach of contract claim, there's a six-year statute of limitations. So if you are aware of a breach of contract and you don't file suit within that six-year time period, you're barred. Even if your, your case was meritorious, you're, you're still barred. Now, the doctrine of latches is different. There's no statutory control. It is purely an equitable doctrine, meaning there's no rule, there's no hard and fast, if you don't do this in six years, you're out. But rather, the the doctrine of latches being an equitable remedy is something that you can raise when you believe that even though it may be within the statute of limitations, that the case has sat around for too long, the claim has sat around for too long. So there are three elements that you must prove if you're going to allege the doctrine of latches. One is that the individual delayed in asserting a right or a claim. Two is that the delay was not reasonable or excusable. And then three, um, it's going to prejudice if you allow them to bring this case, prejudice the defendant. So all three of these factors have to come in play, into play. And in the case of, of this raging bull um, matter, MGM tried to argue that the doctrine of latches applies. Even though she filed suit within the statute of limitations based upon her copyright renewal, they said that she knew about this claim when she filed the renewal in 2009. It's now 2013. Too much time has passed. It's inequitable. It's unfair. And she should not be permitted to bring this case. Uh, ultimately, that argument was defeated. And um, the creator's daughter is obviously going to be able to pursue the claim. But what's interesting here is to understand this doctrine of latches. It's uh, something that you've probably never heard of and something that can, if pled properly and, and if all the elements are met, can prevent you from filing a particular suit or a claim. 
Uh, next, I want to talk about another interesting development. This deals with Toys R Us, um, the largest toy retailer in the country. And this arises out of a breach of contract claim. They had an agreement with this company called Manly Toys of Hong Kong. And what happened here is that uh, roughly around 2006, Manly, who manufactures these inflatable um, play yards, inflatable slides and inflatable you know, water things, the, the sort of thing that you'd, you'd go out and you'd rent for one of your kids' birthday parties. And they were sold by Toys R Us. Well, in 2006, the pool slide uh, on this inflatable pool collapsed, and it caused fatal injury to a Massachusetts woman. And the jury in that case found that Toys R Us sold the slide despite it not being in compliance with federal safety standards, and they awarded the family of the, uh, of the victim $20.6 million. And that broke down to 2.6 in compensatory damages and then $18 million in punitive. Remember, punitive damages are punishment. So it was a significant hit that Toys R Us took. And Toys R Us sought to have Manly defend and indemnify them pursuant to their contract, uh, they sought essentially to have Manly pay for the damages that they had to pay out in the litigation. Um, Manly refused, and Toys R Us ultimately entered into a deal with them, whereby Manly believed that pursuant to the settlement, they would be off the hook for any of these claims that Toys R Us was asserting concerning the improper manufacture of, of the, the slides and the inflatable devices. So Manly contracts for an order of new products that conceivably meet all the federal safety standards, and they ship it, and Toys R Us refuses to pay for it. And Toys R Us does so on the basis of, well, hey, you owe us money from this first lawsuit. So Manly ends up suing Toys R Us. And the lawsuit essentially says that Toys R Us knew what they were doing. They deliberately did this. They deliberately intended to have Manly de deliver products worth somewhere in the area of $5 million and then not pay them. And that, you know, in their minds, Toys R Us did this as punishment and in an effort to recoup some of the money through product. Uh, that they lost in the lawsuit. So this case is, is pending. Um, it was in the U.S. District Court of, of Newark last week, and the judge um, decided that they, she would not dismiss the suit because she believed that you could make out a case for fraudulent inducement. So we'll see where that goes, but that certainly is an interesting case. Uh, also interesting is this case that arises out, of, uh, arises out of the Illinois Appellate Court concerning waiver and release clauses in fitness club memberships. Just about all of us have been at one point in our lives to a fitness club, and we've had to sign that you know, duplicate form. It's probably a two-sided form. It's got a lot of small print and terms and conditions and things that you might not really be aware of because you just want to sign up pay your $20 a month, and work out. 
but you should read the agreement. And here's why. So this case that was brought against LA Fitness International arises out of someone who had joined the gym and they had been working out and they were on a a chin-up dip machine um, and they ended up injuring themselves rather significantly. The individual became a quadriplegic as a result of the accident that he sustained while using the exercise equipment. And he sued LA Fitness. He alleges that they were negligent in their uh, supervision of the gym participants and that they failed to properly train individuals as to how to use certain equipment. And the Illinois Appellate Court agreed with the lower court and said that the waiver that was part of the membership agreement was very clear and that the participation in this gym activity was voluntary on the part of the injured plaintiff. And therefore, the waiver and release agreement, which essentially said that by participating in or using the gym equipment, you waive your rights to bring a claim against LA Fitness. And the uh, the appellate court said that he did, in fact, waive his rights. And this is very interesting because he argued that I didn't even, or he didn't even see the provision. Nobody explained it to him. He didn't see it. He didn't understand it. And the appellate court said, well, it really doesn't matter. So this is uh, very, very uh, interesting because we've all signed these waivers. And you don't even realize that you're signing away certain rights. So... Um, Really, what you need to do is you need to understand what you're signing. If you sign away your rights knowingly, then, you know, it's better than not knowing about it and being surprised when you're injured. But the idea here is that if there is a gym waiver or a waiver for other activities and not just a gym, but a a waiver and release, that so long as the waiver is clear, unambiguous, and you are participating in the activity voluntarily, and that your accidents don't arise out of a definitive negligent act of somebody else. That waiver agreement could be enforced depending upon your state. Now, this is important for people that go to the gym. I'm sure that every one of us has been to the gym and and seen a machine or a new apparatus that the gym owner brought in, and you've said, wow, that looks cool, but I wonder how I use it. And you do your best to try to figure it out, you look stupid, you embarrass yourself, and then you wait until somebody else who knows what they're doing uses it, then you go back on. You should be careful when when doing that. You're best off, quite honestly, asking somebody to show you how to use it. I think that this case in the Illinois Appellate Court would have been a completely different case if the plaintiff had said to somebody at the gym, I don't understand how this machine works. Could you please help me? Could you show me? Hey, by the way, am I using the proper form? I believe that in that case, with those set of facts, if somebody from the gym had tried to assist the plaintiff and explain to him how to use it and then walked away and the plaintiff got injured, I think it might have turned differently because now the gym was directly involved and you could potentially see negligence on their part. 
So that's something that you really should be wary of when you go to a gym and you don't know how to use a piece of equipment, ask. All right, so now we're going to get into the, uh, the verdict result segment of the broadcast. We are going to talk about two cases. One of them arises out of Hudson County, New Jersey, and it involves a, um, a, a grill, a bar and grill. And the bar and grill was uh, located in Seaside Heights. And on July 4th, 2010, an individual was drinking beer at the bar and was sitting outside, um, had closed his eyes, and just looked like he was resting. But apparently the bouncer believed that he was either drunk or just loitering. And the bouncer picked him up and threw him out onto the boardwalk. Now, the plaintiff happened to be um, 55 years old, but in very frail condition. He was battling throat and uh, jaw cancer. And so he was very weak. And when the bouncer threw him onto the boardwalk, he sustained a number of injuries, including a broken clavicle and um, you know, a concussion, a, a fractured left, left rib. So relatively significant injuries. Well, the, the injured individual sued the bar and grill, and ultimately the case settled for $200,000 in favor of the injured individual. Uh, the next case I want to talk about with respect to verdicts is a case that arises, again, out of Hudson County. Uh, this one's interesting. It's wrongful termination because the plaintiff wanted to take time off to fulfill his Army Reserve obligations. Uh, he was a mechanic or technician at an auto repair shop, and he uh, went to fulfill his Army Reserve duties and later found out that he was not being paid by the employer for it and that the employer ultimately terminated him simply because he had these obligations to fulfill. So arising out of this act, or this uh, incident, the jury awarded $112,442 to the plaintiff who was wrongfully terminated. So for all you employers out there, be very careful with what you do when you decide to either terminate or not pay somebody who is trying to fulfill active reserve duties. All right, I also want to talk about um, this week's PACER's National Bullying Prevention Campaign, which we were proud to be a part of. Uh, on October 9th, we all wore our orange T-shirts in support of um, bullying prevention. It's certainly something that we all should be aware of and do our best to talk to our children about. And if you go on to uh, PACER's website, um, there's a tremendous, uh, tremendous wealth of resource there for students, for teachers, and for parents. So um, it, it's a good idea to check that out. Uh, just type in PACER's National Bullying Prevention Center into your search engine, and you'll pull that up. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about is our upcoming coat drive. Uh, this is an annual coat drive that we do in conjunction with New Jersey Cares. And it's a wonderful charity, wonderful organization. Uh, this is the 18th year that the Code Drive has been um, active. 
and we are going to be, like we were last year, a drop-off point for all coat donations. They take coat donations for children, for adults, both men and women. And it's really an important thing. These coats get distributed to individuals that are in need in, in the state of New Jersey. And it's really nice to see an organization helping out local people. There are still a tremendous amount of people down in South Jersey who are, are still impacted by uh, the storms, uh, Hurricane Sandy last year, and the fire down at Seaside and the boardwalk. And there are a lot of people that need coats, so it's really a wonderful thing. We will be posting on our website and social media um, platforms more details about it. But I'd like you to at least be aware of it and uh, gather your coats. Don't throw them out. Um, it's, it's really uh, a wonderful thing. Now, one thing I'll mention is that a lot of times people in our area and in other states have the ability to donate coats to the veterans or to Goodwill. And, and I don't knock that at all. It's a wonderful thing. But sometimes people use it almost as a way to get rid of garbage without having to pay to have it taken away or, or throw it out in your own trash. And um, a lot of these organizations, while they are good and while they do good for people, a lot of these organizations resell your used items and a portion of that money goes to pay salaries and expenses and things like that um, and then gets redistributed. This coat drive is wonderful because the coats go directly to needy individuals. There's no um, percentages that come off the top to pay salaries. All these coats get distributed. So instead of donating your coat to a veterans uh, association or something where they'll come and take it for you and then resell it. Think about saving your coat and uh, bringing it to us. Um, and we will make sure that someone in New Jersey has a coat this winter. Uh, if you are not in New Jersey, there are a number of similar organizations that will do the exact same thing as Jersey Cares. There's one in New York, there's one in Connecticut, Pennsylvania that we're aware of. And if you'd like more information about that, you could certainly contact us and we could give you the address and email um, of, of the organizations that would do that in your states. So keep that in mind. Well, looks like we're running out of time. I apologize again for the technical difficulties that we had at the beginning of the show. I'd like to thank you for joining me. Uh, next week we'll be back with more legal and business news. If you have any questions about something that we've talked about today, or you have a general legal question that you'd like to have answered on the air or off the air, uh, give us a call. Our telephone number is 973-949-3770. Or you can email us at info, I-N-F-O, at Peter Lamont, P-E-T-E-R-L-A-M-O-N-T-E-S-Q.com. Until next time, thank you again for joining us. And remember that there's power in understanding the law.